Well, welcome back here to week two of uh, this new series that we've titled God's Unfolding Story. Hopefully when you walked in this morning, if you didn't get one of the booklets from last week, you got one when you entered in this morning. If you didn't, there are some uh, that are out there. Be sure and grab one on your way out because it's going to be helpful as we walk through this series over the next uh, few weeks. But this, uh, this series of, of six weeks, God's Unfolding Story, it's really a, uh, it's a study of biblical theology, meaning that our goal here is we're going to see how all of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus and finds the fulfillment of it all in the person of Christ. So we're saying it like this, that the Bible is one story about one God redeeming one people through one Savior. Uh, now each week, a few of us on staff, we sit, we sit down together and we review the sermon from the previous week. And so uh, this past week, as we were all sitting down uh, talking about the, the sermon from last Sunday, one of the things that, that came up in our uh, conversation was explaining the word redemption. What does it mean to redeem? What's God doing when he's saying he's redeeming one people? It might be a word that you're like, well, I've heard of it, but what does it actually really mean biblical? It was actually really helpful feedback from, uh, from, from the staff there. So uh, it was Isaac, actually, who sent out an article to us uh, that he came across of this biblical idea of redemption. And so what I want to do here is I just want to read a little bit of, of that. It was an article uh, taking a, a section from this book called The Epic of, of Eden. And, and I just want to read a little bit of this because it fits perfectly with not only what we talked about last week with this fall of mankind in Eden and, and then their, their, ups, uh, their, their exile from God's presence but, but it's also going to help us point to what we're going to see today as we're journeying through the book of Exodus, actually all the way through Ruth. We're going to go Exodus to Ruth today. All right, and so here's what Sandra Richter says in her book, Epic of Eden, about redemption. She says, in, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of a patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who had been driven to the margins of society, either by poverty or who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had or he or she had no defense or who found themselves enslaved by the consequences even of a faithless life. And so redemption, she says, was the, the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle of the family. So this was a, a patriarch's responsibility. This was the, the safety net of Israel's society. And this is the backdrop for the Epic of Eden in which we New Testament believers find ourselves. She goes on to say, can you hear the metaphor of Scripture? God is presenting himself as the patriarch of the clan who has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Not only has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his household to accomplish his intent, his son. His goal, to restore the lost family members to the father's household so that where he is, they may be also. This is why we speak of each other as brother and sister, why we know God as father, why we call ourselves the household of faith. Father God is buying back his lost children by sending his son, his heir, to give his life as a ransom for many so that we who are alienated might be adopted as sons and daughters and share forever in the inheritance of this firstborn of all creation. What a beautiful explanation of redemption. That God the Father pays the ransom. 
that through the life and blood of his own son, he pays this ransom to redeem us who are exiles because of our sin and then adopts us into his family as sons and daughters to then share in the inheritance of the eternal son. This is what we mean by redemption, God redeeming, saving one people. And the story of Scripture centers around Jesus, who is, who, is, who is the one who paid the price for our redemption. And so last week, last week we went through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We ended in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, with what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. It's there that God comes to Abram, and he, he enters into this covenant with him, promising to make of him and through him a great nation, a great name, and that through him all the nations would be blessed. And so what we saw was that this promise that was made to Abraham is one of blessing. It's a, it's, it's a promise of hope. It's a promise of salvation or of redemption. It's a promise to restore humanity back into right relationship with God in the presence of God. And Genesis 12 says that he's going to do this through the line of Abraham. Now, here's why this is going to matter to us today. All of us are in need of redemption. Can we agree with, with that? And, and what I mean by that is that humanity, whether we recognize God or not as the creator, humanity recognizes that something is deeply wrong within us and needs to be fixed. We, we see that reality in the human heart everywhere if we have eyes to see it. And so the stories, for example, the stories that we tell, the stories that we write as Human beings recognize the brokenness within us and the brokenness that's all around us. So think of the, the, the movies we watch or the books that we read, the ones that maybe we go to time and time again. For the most part, we're drawn to them because these, these stories follow kind of this basic plot line. Like, like the story typically be begins maybe with this, maybe a semblance of stability, but the story goes and very quickly life is broken, right? Life then becomes not what it should be. There's conflict. There's a break or divide in the story. Something goes wrong. And the stories that we love, the stories that our hearts resonate with or are drawn to end with restoration, right? Life again as it was supposed to be. Or, or even maybe even better than it was, right? Um, what were the fairy tales? How do they end? And they all lived happily ever after, Right? The prince and princess, like riding off into the sunset, right? So why do our hearts resonate with those stories? Why do children resonate with those, those, those fairy tales? It's because, because we, we want them to be true in us as well. Like deep down, we, deep down, we, we see these stories and we, we long to live in the happily ever after ourselves. We get lost in those stories because for, for a brief moment, it's, it's like there's an escape. There's an escape from reality, an escape from the, the difficulty and the suffering of our own lives. And so it's why we have our favorite books, our favorite shows, our favorite movies that we just go to over and over because we want to get lost in it for a moment to escape the brokenness that's all around us and within us. But, but here's the good news for us today, that the story of Scripture, that God's unfolding story is not one that we have to just get lost in and wish that it were true. It is truth. It's the story of God and the happily ever after that our souls long for and thirst for and that, that the one that finds its reality and its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. It's what's drawing us to. And so the opening pages of Genesis, as we saw last week, 
paint this picture of who God is, of who humanity is, and, and what humanity's need is. And, and what we discover within the first few chapters is, is God's intent to restore and redeem a broken and sinful and fallen humanity and creation back to its good design through, through that promise in Genesis 3, through a promised Messiah who's going to suffer. So Genesis 12 then opens with that, that blessing, the, the, the unfolding story continuing of this promise of redemption, of healing, of hope, of this Messiah. Now to get, though, from the promise of blessing in Genesis 12, where we ended last week uh, in, in our story, to today in Exodus 19, there's about 650 years of Israel's history between those two points, between where we ended last week and where we started today. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to try and cover 650 years of, of, of Israel history in about five to seven minutes. Remember, again, we're flying high here, okay? We're flying high in this series, getting a a, a bigger picture. But I need to do this just because there's going to be some in this room that don't, they don't have the basic framework of Scripture. You don't. You're like, I have no idea how you get from Genesis 12 to X. What happened? Like, why are they at a mount? Who are these people? And so for all of us to to be on the same page and understand where we are and how the story is progressing, it's going to help for us to at least see now where we're going and where the story is unfolding to how we get now to Exodus 19, where Moses and these Israelites are at this base of this mountain. All right, so here we go, five to seven minutes, flying high. Here's where we go from Genesis 12, Exodus 19. As we just saw, God gives Abraham this promise. At this point in his life, right, at this point in his life, Abram's life, he and his wife, Sarah, they have no children. And so for this promise to be fulfilled that, okay, it's going to be through your line, Abraham, God needs to give them children. And so the rest of Genesis, the the rest of the chapters, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, the rest of Genesis traces the line of Abraham. And so he and his wife, Sarah, they miraculously, because of their old age, they have have a son. And his son's name is Isaac. Isaac grows and marries a woman named Rebecca. They have twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Now, both Jacob and Esau, we see, will become the father of two different nations, two different lines of people. So Esau becomes the father of what was called the Edomites. And then Jacob, though, Jacob, we see in Genesis, is the one whom God favors, right? So now we see it's going to be through Jacob that, that this, this promise is going to come. So Jacob becomes the father of the Israelites, God's chosen people. And so the story of Genesis from that point starts to focus on Jacob's journey. So Jacob has many children, but of the many children, he has 12 sons, 12 sons. And so in Genesis 32 through 35, Jacob's name is changed to Israel which means to, to strive with God. Or, or it's one that means to seek God's favor. That's what Israel means. And so thus Jacob becomes here the patriarch. He becomes Israel. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, fast forward to Genesis 37, all the way through the end of 50, and the story of Genesis focuses on, on one of his sons, specifically Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers, his 11 brothers, are jealous of Joseph's favored position with their father. And so Joseph, they, they want to kill him, but then they convince themselves, well, let's just sell him into slavery. So Joseph, through a, a number of different things that takes place, ends up in Egypt. But God's hand is upon him, and even through trial, through suffering, Joseph eventually finds himself second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. And it was through God-given dreams, Joseph helped save the entire land from 
from starvation, from this severe famine that was going to happen throughout the entire region. So God gives Joseph this dream, and so Egypt prepares for this famine to, to, to get them through it. So Joseph's brothers now, who they think Joseph's long dead. Well, they come to Egypt. Why? Because they're looking for food. They're, they're suffering under the famine. So they come to Egypt. Joseph recognizes them. They don't at first, but Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. There's reconciliation between them all. And then Genesis ends with all of Israel's children, right? All of Jacob's children, which comprise the 12 tribes of Israel, all moving into Egypt where they can find safety. And then Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. That takes us now into the book of Exodus, a couple centuries have passed between these, these events, and now the nation of Israel is in Egypt. And, and Exodus 1 verse 7 would say this, that the people of Israel were fruitful and in, increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the, the land was filled with them. That, that verse is a callback to Genesis 1, where the biblical mandate God gives Adam and Eve is to uh, be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, right? So Israel's doing that. The nation of Israel's doing that. They're having children. They're growing. They're increasing. But at this time, Exodus tells us that the Pharaoh that was in charge of Egypt at this time did not know Joseph, did not remember Joseph, did not know the promises given to him. And so he began to grow concerned over this rapid increase of Israelites in his nation. And so he enslaves them and then orders that all newborn Israelite sons need to be killed to stop the, 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 the population increase. However, amongst these Israelites, a child is born named Moses. During this time, God preserved his life, and Moses grew up in the land of Egypt. At the end of Exodus 2, the Israelites are crying out to God for deliverance because they're enslaved and they're in bondage in Egypt. And so it says that God hears their cries, and he calls Moses, whom he had preserved, and he says to Moses, go now to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go free. Pharaoh refuses, and so God unleashes 10 plagues upon the land with, this, with the final plague, that 10th plague being the death of all firstborn sons. However, God tells his people that over this final plague that he's going to pass over their homes. He won't take the life of any of their firstborn sons if they will sacrifice and spread the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. It was an act here which foreshadows the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It pointed to Jesus' death. This monumental moment, though, in this Passover, this monumental moment in Israel's history is what we call or what they called the Passover, that through the death of a lamb, many were saved. Do you, do you see Christ in that? After this Pharaoh releases the Israelites, after all the firstborn sons, firstborn in all of Egypt are, are killed, Pharaoh releases the Israelites from their enslavement, and God leads them out of Egypt through Moses and toward a land that, that he says he will give them. In Exodus 14, though, Pharaoh once again has this change of heart, this change of mind, and he orders his army, go get the Israelites. What have we done to release them? Go get them and bring them back to me. The Israelites were, at this point, currently camped along a sea called the Red Sea. And when they saw the Egyptian army coming for them, they began to fear and they began to complain to Moses. Their backs are up against a, a wall here. They're against this, this sea. But God here miraculously delivers them by causing the sea to part in half so that they can walk safely across to the other side so they can be delivered once again. 
the Egyptians, blinded by sheer rage or just wickedness of heart, chase after them into the sea, and God causes the sea to come crashing down on them, killing them all. The Israelites see this whole thing take place. They witness it all, God's deliverance, his salvation. And that's important for us to note because this mighty act of salvation is going to come up again and again with Israel where God's reminding them, remember what I did, how I saved you, how I delivered you. In Exodus 14, 31, it says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So God here continues to lead them through the wilderness and that takes us there now to Exodus 19. About seven weeks have passed from the Exodus to where they are now settling in the wilderness of Sinai at the base of this mountain. And that's the first couple of verses that we heard Ben read this morning, verses one and two of Exodus 19, which says, on the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now they're gonna be here Israel's going to be here for the next about 11 months. So Exodus 19 all the way through Numbers chapter 10 takes place right here at at the base of Mount Sinai. So Exodus, all of Leviticus, and then the first 10 chapters of Numbers is all taking place right here at Mount Sinai. Now we're going to use the text that you heard read this morning in in chapter 19 as as a springboard, though, into what's going to take place in, in the rest of the book of Exodus and all the way through Ruth. And so, again, look at the text with me, starting in verses 3, and I'll read, I'll just read through the end, verse 6 again. So it says, while Moses went up to God, so, so again, God is calling Moses now to him and saying, okay, you're, you're settled, I've delivered you, all right? So Moses, come to me, I, I, I've got to speak to you and give you a word to, that you're going to now deliver to, to Israel. So while Moses went up to God, says the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So there's, again, there's a callback. Remember what I've done. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, um, if, if you notice it, there's a, there's a bit of a callback here to Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. So, so, so where is that? What is that? What, what happens in Eden? God creates and he calls Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden where he provides for them, right? So we saw last week that, that in this garden, God causes trees to just spring up, trees that are good for food. And, and that in the garden, God gives them a command, a command to obey him. And it gives them this mandate, right? Be fruitful, m- multiply on the earth, right? What, what is that? That's, okay, Adam and Eve, fill the earth, spread, spread to the, the edge of the earth the glory of God, right? As, as my image bears, spread, right? Spread it. Well, we saw last week they fail. They sin. Adam and Eve rebel, and humanity is, because of that failure, because of that rebellion, is under God's wrath, and creation is now cursed. So here we are now in Exodus 19, and what are we seeing? God's, God's call to, to the Israelites here. God calls, and he leads his people now to this place of safety. He's provided for them. 
right, by giving them food and water in miraculous ways. They have time to, to touch on that, but in the, the few chapters leading up to Exodus 19, they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and God provides, like, like bread from heaven, water coming from rocks, right? What is that? that it's him causing trees to spring up, so to speak, right? He's providing for his people. He's, def- he's defeated their enemies. He's delivered them from bondage. And now what's he doing? He's giving them his law. He's giving them a command and saying, if you will obey, what's going to happen? You're going re- to remain in my presence, which is what Eden was, the presence of God, dwelling with God. You'll remain in my presence, and you'll be a light to the nation, spreading the glory of God to the ends of the earth, right? You'll be this kingdom of priests, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. So let's camp here for a bit with the Israelites and explore what God is seeking to do among them. So what are the themes of Scripture being seen here that resonate throughout the pages of God's story? We're going to notice just three, three themes primarily. Notice in verse 3 that God calls to Moses out of the mountain. And, and notice what it says, that Moses went up, right? Went up to God, right? So, so in that, it's, it's signifying the, the holiness and the glory of God, right? We're seeing here the holiness and the glory of God. That God is holy means that he is set apart from his creation, right? He is beyond it. He is transcendent. He is perfectly pure and righteous, That he is holy means that there is no fault within him, that there is no blemish to be seen. So so in Exodus 20, the very next chapter, God is going to give his people something that we're mostly probably familiar with, the Ten Commandments, right? And and these Ten Commandments he gives to Moses to give to the people, again, is this way in which they are to remain in relationship. Here's what it looks like to, to, to be with me. This is what it looks like to obey and so the first commandment that God gives is, is that they are to have no other gods before him. So, so Israel, the nation of Israel, is living in the midst of a, uh, a bunch of other nations that were very polytheistic, multiple gods. Egypt had multiple gods that they, they worship. And so this first command that God gives to his people is that you're to have no other gods before me, that I alone, God alone, is worthy of their undivided worship. In fact, he, what he's saying is there are no other gods apart from him. But, but the second commandment is the one I want to key in on for just a second. Because I believe the second commandment he gives to them speaks into his holiness. The second command God gives is in verse 4 of chapter 20. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So what is, what's this command about? Why, why this command? Again, remember that they're, they're living amongst other nations that are polytheistic, many gods, multiple gods, and, and, and nations that would carve and create idols to resemble the gods that they were following and worshiping. And God is saying to his people, do not try and capture my likeness. Do not try and capture my image. Do not try and capture my glory. Do not try and capture my holiness with anything, anything that I've created. Like what he's saying is like, I've created everything. Do you understand? I spoke everything into existence. I am beyond creation. And there's nothing in creation that you could put together, carve, make, mold, that could even come close to resembling who I am. That there's nothing in all creation that that can resemble his holiness, his glory. And what he's commanding them to do is say, to try and do that, to try and make an idol that even resembles me, is to defame him. 
It's to cheapen his holiness. He is transcendent. There's nothing in creation that resembles who God is fully and completely. You might be thinking, but human beings are made in the image of God. Yes, we are. But we still must recognize that God is far beyond us, that he is all-powerful. I'm not. He's all-knowing. I surely am not. Ever-present. He's eternal. We, we aren't any of those things, right? He is the creator. We are the created, right? So, so what's Isaiah say? Like his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is beyond us. He transcends us. He is unique and set apart from creation. That's holiness. And our response to the holiness of God is, is not to try and make sense of it, not to try and I, I need to understand, get my mind around. I need to fully understand who you are. That's not our response to the holiness of God. Our response to the holiness of God is to marvel at it, to submit to it, to humble ourselves and to worship. Amen. God is a holy God and his glory, his weightiness covers the universe. That's what we see here as God calls Moses up to him. But the text continues in verse 4. He says, you, you, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and, and brought you to myself. So we're reminded here of, of another theme in Scripture, that of God's judgment, but also deliverance. God's judgment and deliverance. See, God's holiness demands obedience. It's what he calls them to, obey me, right? So that's his holiness demands our submission, our obedience and rebellion to his holiness, rebellion to his commands, results in God's judgment. The Israelites saw what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They saw it with their own eyes. Pharaoh and his kingdom, up to this point in the story, really epitomizes the wickedness of humanity and our rebellious hearts toward God. When God brought the ten plagues upon Egypt, they were meant to reveal through them God's dominion and rule over all gods, over all creation. And, and these plagues were even a call to Pharaoh, submit to this God, submit to me. That's because these 10 plagues that were, that were given, that were, that were plagued upon Egypt, were actually seemingly an attack on all the false gods of Egypt. So, so, so you can draw a line between each plague to, to connect to one of the gods that Egypt worshipped that was supposed to protect them from this. And so the plagues were revealing, listen, there are no other gods other than God alone, right? These, these, this was his call to come submit to me. God is establishing his dominance, his dominion, his power over Egypt, and even giving Pharaoh a chance to submit to his rule. Obviously, Pharaoh doesn't. His heart is hardened, and through his rebellion, he incurs the wrath and the judgment of God. Israel witnesses that final judgment at the Red Sea. Israel also, though, in that moment, witnessed and experienced as, as the seas came crashing down on the Egyptians coming after them to enslave them, right? Again, just see, hear the pictures. See the picture of here and how it points to God's deliverance, right? As, as what is coming to enslave them, right? Something comes crashing down on them. They're seeing God's deliverance from that which seeks to enslave. That, that not only through the Passover did they see God's deliverance, but also they saw deliverance through the crossing of the Red Sea, that that which stood in front of them, hindering their crossing from one side of danger to the other side of salvation, right, was parted in two. 
And, and they were able to walk through it and be delivered, to be saved, right? They're experiencing and seeing God's deliverance. Do you, do you see, I won't get too far ahead of myself, but do you see Jesus in that? Do you see what he provided, what he did? That which was trying to enslave and then capture us and put us under bondage. What, what did Christ do? He paid the penalty. The curtain was torn in two, right? He provided a way to be made right. That's what we see here even in Israel's deliverance. They're reminded of that. But lastly, or thirdly, we're reminded of this theme of God's law and their identity. That's what we see in verses five and six. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a, a kingdom of priests and a, and a holy nation. Okay, so, so we're going to keep coming back to, to Eden, but that's important in Genesis 1 and 2, because we want to keep that in our minds as we see God's story unfold. So remember, God gives Adam and Eve his commands. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they'll obey and the, if they'll trust him and abide in him, they'll, they'll continually remain in the presence of God. Life, again, as it was intended and designed and meant to be. But like we've said and seen, they, they fail. And so in Genesis 3, this promise was given of this coming Messiah who's going to restore creation and humanity back to God's good design, right? Eden restored, so to speak. So, so like we said last week, the question from that moment in Genesis 3 becomes, who is this redeemer? Who, who is going to pay the price? Who's going to suffer to bring redemption and restoration of all creation back to God. And so that's what Scripture is asking. Who is it? Is it Abraham? Well, it's not Abraham. But, but we learn, though, it's through his line. It, it's not Isaac. It's, it's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. So here we are now with the nation of Israel. Is it them? Is it them? There, there's kind of here what we're seeing in Exodus 19. We're seeing kind of a, a reset, it seems, Right? So God calls them. He delivers them and now gives them his law and says, obey and you'll abide in my presence and you'll be my people and you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a set-apart people. Now, what's he mean by kingdom of priests? Right? He's giving them this new identity and a new purpose, that, that they're no longer slaves. And, and so he's moving them from, listen, Israel, you are no longer enslaved. You're, I'm moving you from slavery to royalty. This is this new identity that you have in me. So again, this is a callback to Genesis 12, where again, through the line of Abraham now, God will bless all nations. And so God is saying to Israel here through Moses, if you will obey, if you will follow me, you're going to be that light to the nations by which all will be blessed, that through you, all nations will be drawn to the glory of God as you live underneath my right reign and rule over you. And so over the next several chapters, God gives Moses the law. Basically, these laws uh, encompassed in how Israel was to live in right relationship with God and in right relationship with one another. Uh, Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment, right? What's the greatest commandment to which he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what these laws that, that Exodus unpacks uh, is showing, right? Love of God, love of neighbor. So for a few chapters, it, it's looking okay, 
right? Like God's giving them his law. Um, In chapter 23, God promises to give them a a promised land where they're going to dwell with God, right? Under his reign and rule. Remember uh, God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so now we're getting in chapter 23. God's saying, I'm going to give you a a promised land, a place where you're going to dwell with me. All right, so that's what scripture's pointing to. So, so things are, are looking good in the story right now with Israel, right? Here we go. God's doing something amazing within the Israelites. Then we get to chapters 25 through 31. God gives, begins to give Moses instructions for the building of what was called the tabernacle. This tabernacle that's going to dwell in the midst of the people, right? It's, it's again, this picture of Eden, right, where, where God's dwelling with his people, his creation, that he's in the midst of them. The tabernacle is going to be in the center, and, and all the people are going to center or, or surround it. This picture, again, of God's um, indwelling presence with his people. He's among them. He's their God. They're his people, right? So here we go, right? Things are cooking. Creation, all right, let's see creation's restoration. Let's see humanity's redemption come to fruition. That's kind of what we're beginning to see God doing here in Exodus. But then... Exodus 32, well, Moses was up on the mountain with God, right? And the people are seeing the the top of the mountain covered in smoke, covered in the cloud, the the Shekinah glory of God. They see it with their own eyes, and they grow restless. It's taken too long, and they demand an idol, an idol be crafted so they can worship it, and they credit it with their deliverance over Egypt. They fail the first two commands of the Ten Commandments right away. They rebel, and God's anger in that moment burns against them. That while God is speaking to Moses on instructions for the tabernacle, on, on how to, he's going to dwell with his people, they're down there rebelling and saying, let's credit this, this idol here. This is the one who really saved us. And while this is happening, you see this terrifying verse in Exodus 32.10. Now, therefore, God says to Moses, let me alone. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. But God relents, right? Why? Because he's gracious and he's merciful. Would he have been wrong to, to wipe them out in that moment? Absolutely not. If that was the story, we'd be like, praise God for his justice. But there's grace and there's mercy. He relents. Israel has failed, though, to be that light among the nations. They've rebelled just as human beings do. The rest of Exodus tells of the building, though, and the design of the tabernacle, that even though they rebelled, he's good. God is good and faithful. He desires to dwell still even among them. But, But Exodus ends, though, very interestingly. The tabernacle is completed. And, and the glory of God comes and rests upon the, 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 the innermost room, this holy of holies. But Exodus ends by saying that not even Moses can enter into it. So we see in Exodus 40, verse 35, this is where it starts to get really interesting and in how the rest of the books that we're going to hit really quickly all come together. It says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, and Exodus ends with this clear divide between God and man. That the unholy cannot be in the presence of the holy. And yet God still desires to dwell with his people. The tabernacle's there. And so Exodus ends with us asking this question, something's got to be done. How, how do we get Moses from outside to inside? We see, and that's why we have the book of Leviticus. 
You read through, if you've ever read through Leviticus, it's a jaunt, right? It's, okay, what's going on? But here's how Leviticus is this beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of getting us into the presence of God. Now, Leviticus 1, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, opens up by saying this. It paints this picture, right? The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So what's happening here? God is on the inside of the, of the tent. Moses is on the outside, right? It's this picture that he can't enter, right? Why? Unholy cannot be with holy. So what's the purpose of Leviticus and the offerings and the sacrificial system and all the animals being killed? Like what is going on in Leviticus? Leviticus is the solution to the problem of the holy and the unholy. How can man enter into God's presence? That's how it opens. It's a problem. We see through Leviticus, it's going to be through sacrifice. It's starting to make more sense of Genesis 3.15 when God looks at Satan and says, listen, you're going to um, bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head, right? There's suffering. There's sacrifice. Okay, Leviticus begins to, to put more skin around that promise. Okay, it's got to be through death. It's got to be through sacrifice. It's got to be through payment, through blood. A debt's got to be paid. This is what Leviticus begins to reveal and show. And so Leviticus is this bridge between the holy and the unholy. The next book of the, of the law is Numbers. Listen to how Numbers opens. So in Leviticus, it's Moses is on the outside, God's on the inside. But look what happens in Numbers 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Moses is now in the presence of God. Why? Because there's been a sacrifice. There's been a way for humanity, the unholy, to come into the presence of the holy. Now, you read through numbers, and it, humanity isn't any better. It, it, it's, a, it's a quick accounting of Israel's further slide into rebellion and depravity to, to the point where God tells them that they're, they're not going to even enter into the land that was promised to them. That, that listen, you're going to wander because of your constant rebellion, your constant complaining, your constant bellyaching. Right? God looks at this generation and says, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you all die, and it's going to be your children who are going to enter. Right? Not even Moses is going to see the promised land. So then we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is simply a retelling of the law. Why does there have to be a retelling? Because it's, it's a new generation. Right? The, the, the parents have died off. They failed. It's the kids now. So Moses now gives this, this exhortation, the law of God, to this new generation that they need to, be, need to be reminded. You need to obey. You need to submit to God. Your parents failed. Will you obey and reap the benefits and the blessing of God in this promised land with him reigning over you as king? Will you be this light to the nations? Deuteronomy concludes then with Moses' death and now Joshua appointed as the leader to lead them into this land. So then you get to the book of Joshua, and it tells of Israel's conquest to drive out the inhabitants of the land so that God's people may dwell there with him, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule. Joshua concludes in chapter 24 with, with this retelling of Israel's history going all the way back to Abraham, all the way then leading them to where they are in this point. Like, listen, here's the promise given to Abraham. Here you are now in the land he promised to you. And Joshua charges the people, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? Follow God. It's a reminder to them of God's faithfulness, Joshua is. And then this charge to them, obey and serve this good God. But after Joshua's death, there's the book of Judges. Book of Judges. Oh, my goodness, the book of Judges. Leaders would rise up 
and, and lead and defend Israel. Judges were these leaders that, that came up that God would rise up. But, oh, everything just falls apart in Judges. We're actually going to go through the book of Judges this fall. It's, it's a mess. The, the sinfulness of humanity is, is abundant. There's this vicious cycle you see in Judges of the people rebelling, God's judgment falling upon them, them crying out for help, and then God's mercy, and he delivers them through a judge, through this leader. But then that cycle just continues over and over again. And then lastly, for today, there's though that, this little book of Ruth. This little book of Ruth. Four-chapter story, but it takes place in the midst, in the time of the judges. In a time when just everything is just a mess. It reminds us, though, that in the midst of humanity's downward spiral, that God is intervening and still bringing redemption. That he's not lost. All right, Ruth is the story of this woman who has lost her husband, now suffers the results that come with having no one to provide. So, so because of, of the, the no husband and their mother, her mother-in-law, her husband died as well, so they are now cast really to the outskirts of society. But, but Ruth is also the story of what you'll see as a, a kinsman redeemer, a man named Boaz. So you, do you remember from the very beginning this morning the biblical explanation of redemption, right? This is where it kind of all comes a little bit full circle for us this morning. In Israel's society, we said a, a patriarch of the family would redeem or buy back any family member who has been pushed to the fringes of society. And so the story of Ruth and Boaz shows us that. Like Boaz marries Ruth, who is shoved to the outskirts of society. Boaz is a patriarch of this family, and he marries Ruth, and he redeems her entire family. It's a picture in, in Ruth of ultimately what Christ would do for us. Ruth ends by, by setting the stage for how the story is going to continue to unfold next week with a man named David, the one who will rule as king over the nation of Israel. Yet, as we'll see, his reign only, it only points to the eternal reign of King Jesus. You see, Ruth ends with this genealogy which shows us that David is Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson. You see, Ruth, in the midst of humanity's downward spiral that, we, that we've seen ultimately still points outside of itself and offers hope and continues to lead us to answer the question, who is the Messiah? Who will redeem? Do you see and hear Jesus throughout the story this morning? Ultimately, everything that we've read and seen up to this point in the scriptures finds its fulfillment in Christ. But at the same time, do you see yourselves in this story? We, we are, there used to be a time where I would look at the, the Israelites throughout the Exodus and just be like, you fools. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you saw, you saw a sea part in half. Like, what is, what are you complaining about? Right? You saw bread come from heaven, water come from, like, he has provided, what? And then all of a sudden, there was like this day of alignment where the Spirit of God just was like, just punched me in the face. And it's like, that's you. That's you. That's me. We are rebellious traitors drifting from God, turning our hearts and minds toward the creation rather than the creator. We are in need of deliverance. We are in need of forgiveness. Through this unit of scripture, we've seen the faithfulness of God despite man's unfaithfulness. We've seen the purpose of the law, which is only to expose sin. God didn't give the law as a way to save them. God gave them the law to show them you need a savior. You are not the savior exposes our sin and our need for grace and for forgiveness. We've seen man's failed attempts to save themselves. We've seen God's desire to dwell with his people, and yet we've seen the unholy can only approach the holy through sacrifice and through payment. 
You see, Exodus through Ruth provides many glimpses of Jesus, the Messiah who was prophesied to come and redeem God's people. See, these books, they point to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. They point to Jesus as the true dwelling place of God, the fulfillment of the law, the ultimate judge and savior, the one who will bring all people into God's family through faith. That through Jesus, the unholy can now dwell with the holy. That through faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, his sacrifice, his payment for sin makes us right. It's Christ who has parted the waters, which blocked our entrance into the presence of God. It's Christ who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and the power of sin and death. And through faith in him that we are redeemed and justified and adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. Now we get to go with this message of hope, just as Israel was commissioned to be this kingdom of priests, this light to the nations. We go into the world as kingdom of priests, making known the glory of this God and this message of forgiveness. We have this commission from Jesus, our great king, to go make disciples, what, of all nations, all people. We go as light into the darkness, knowing Christ has overcome. Praise God. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning thanking you for your deliverance, your faithfulness. God, we come here this morning recognizing you are holy, we are unholy, that you are perfectly right and we are completely sinful, that we fail to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, that we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. No, we, we put ourselves first far too often. And it's only by your grace that we are made right, that we are brought into the presence of God. And so, God, as we, as we see your story continually unfold, God, we, we, we don't want to just learn moral principles. This is not just about how to better obey the rules. We've we got to clearly see that we will fall short of obedience every single time. It doesn't excuse our obedience but, it, but ultimately, it has to reveal that we need a Savior. And so, God, may the law drive us to the gospel. May the gospel then free us to obey the law. And then may as we go this day, as we are sent people here, God, may we go now with this message of hope and light in the midst of darkness that we would resemble as the church, this outpost of your kingdom, what it looks like to, to live under your reign, your rule, but to live with such joy that it draws the nations, draws all people to the glory of God. God, this is what you've called us to. This is what you have done. This is what you are doing. And, and yet here, our hearts, we still long and yearn, though, for your return. When all will be restored to how it was meant to be, life as it was meant to be in the presence of God forever and ever. So God, we do pray the prayer of revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We need you now. But until then, may we wait upon you and may we live with intentionality and purpose and mission as you've called us to and as you lived for us. Pray all of us in your name. Amen.